We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Welcome to Rams Talk Radio. This is managing editor Derek C. Apollo with our special guest today, former Los Angeles Rams cornerback. I guess, you know, it's, you can't really ever say former because he's always going to be a Ram. Leroy Irvin, welcome to the show. Leroy, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for inviting me. Well, we're glad to have you. I guess the first question we want to ask you is, how are you doing? What are you doing in life these days? Well, I'm just kind of semi-retired, just, you know, relaxing, uh, going back and forth to Mexico. Uh, uh, you know, have a business with Eric Dickerson and some other partners and just kind of taking life easy. So you, you mentioned a business. What kind of business is it? Well, we have a, a, a we do multiple different types of investments, different projects, but we're kind of between projects now. So we're all just kind of relaxing. Just kind of relaxing. Well, you know, you're retired. You're allowed to do that. You know? Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> well, I guess one thing we all would want to know is, is, is how does it feel to have the Rams back in town? Well, it's a, it's a great feeling, you know. This town needed a football team, and, and, and fortunately, we have two of them now. So uh, we probably have more, one more than we need. But uh, we're all we're all very very excited about the Rams being in town. You were a member of this team during you know the '80s. I know you left after the '89 season, and you moved on from the Rams before things really went downhill. Before they you know before they left LA, 
What was it like playing for the Rams in the eighties, uh, especially on well, teams like on the teams with the eighty-four team, the eighty-five team, and so on and so forth? Well, you know, when I first got to the Rams, I was you know in awe of the players because you know it's Los Angeles. You know, I went to college in Kansas, went to high school in Georgia, so the LA environment was something I dreamed about being in. And then when I got to LA, you know, with all the stars on the team, the young blood, Dale Gamos, Hacksaw Rivers, Willie Tyler's, all those guys, Pat Thomas, Rod Perry, I can go on and on and on. But it was very exciting. You know, the city was on fire. Uh, we were winning. You know, and you have to win in this city. You can't just be a team. You have to win. And we were winning, and, you know, life was really, really good. This is the first time I've talked to you, so this is uh, really kind of just understanding, you know, what life was like for you in, in the 80s out there. Especially as a Rams player, were you? Did you ever see things going south for the Rams out there, or was it kind of a shock when they moved years later? Well, you know, one of the things that we all noticed as players was our fans' attendance, and we, you know, we understood our stadium wasn't the best stadium in the world. But you know, one 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 year, I think it was '84 or '85, we were like seven and zero or six and zero or something like that, and we couldn't even fill the stadium. You know, we had 56,000 or 60,000 seats and, you know, a lot of empty seats in the stadium. And we never understood why, you know, we weren't having sellouts like the 49ers or the Chargers, you know, or all the other teams around the league. And, you know, we we never thought that Georgia would actually move the team. We just knew that you know, they were making decisions that prompted us to start thinking that, wow, they're getting rid of a, they're dismounting a good group of guys. And we just wondered why they were doing that. It was like an 89 in 90, you know, our whole team was almost dismantled, so we, we figured something was up. In those years, like you mentioned, 84, 85, 86, some of the peak years that you had with the Rams, what were special about those years for you? Well, you know, I got to play with Eric Dickerson, you know, who's been a friend of mine for so many years, and we had the same agent at that time. We became really good friends, you know, and, you know, Vince uh, Ferragamo, you know, who had been on the team, uh, you know, became real good friends with him, and all the guys, we had just great memories together, playing together. We didn't really see ourselves as a team of one, but a team of 55. And so uh, it was just it's an honor to play with those guys. And it's just a pleasure to be in the NFL playing in Los Angeles. What was the greatest game you ever played in? Well, I played in a few really, really great games. Uh, you know, I, I would always say the greatest game. I always tell everybody my, my favorite game was the game I broke the NFL record in. But it was not that game. It was, uh, I think, a game we played the Minnesota Vikings, and it came down to uh, a fourth and one at the two-yard line. Uh can't remember what year it was, but uh, that was probably my greatest game against the Vikings. Bud Grant was the coach. He had a decision to make whether he uh, kick the field goal and tie the game and go into overtime or go for it on fourth and one and win the game. And his, I'll never forget his quote. His quote after the game was, the reason I went for it was because I was never guaranteed to be in a better position to win the game than I was at that moment. And that, that game really stuck in my mind. I still remember what year it was, but uh, they had Darren Nelson. He was uh, was, was the running back. So uh, that was probably the greatest game I played in my in my career. Back in the 80s, that rivalry at the time, the Rams 49ers was regarded as one of the best in the league. Did you as a player consider it that way? Yes, you know, um, I did, and, you know, because of obvious reasons, you know, they're, early in my career, they weren't winning that much. They were just a mediocre team. Uh, they got, uh, you know, Montana, they had Dwight Clark, and they had uh, 
and he has Freddie Solomon as the receiver. So, you know, we that rivalry started growing, you know, and then it really started blossoming when they started winning. And I, I think around 83, 84 is when I really started saying, wow, this is this is a game we have to win, you know. And, and then when they got Jerry Rice in 1985, it, the challenge was there for me as a defensive back because, you know, they had Joe Montana, Hall of Fame quarterback, and they had our former running back, Wendell Tyler. Then they got Roger Craig. So they had a, they had a, a lot of great great players, Ronnie Lott. I can go on and on and on. But that was one of the games we marked on our calendar. But, you know, when you look at the NFC West at that time, you know, you had the Atlanta Falcons. They were a very good football team, the Atlanta Falcons. And so were the New Orleans Saints. They were a very good football team. So we had three opponents in our conference that could beat us on any Sunday. And all those games were tough games, but the 49er game was the game we looked at uh, from before the season started. The team went through some changes following the 87 season, started moving in different directions to 88, 89. You guys made the playoffs both in 88 and 99. When we talk about the 49ers game, I remember in 1989, you guys had really good games against them uh, during the regular season. And then you guys, you had that great performance against the Eagles and the title touchdown with the Giants. And then you go into play the 49ers in the NFC Championship game. And it was it was a rough one. What happened that day? I remember that game. So, so all that started back on Monday Night Football uh, earlier in the, in the year. Uh, we played the 49ers in Anaheim, and we had them beat 24-3 at halftime. And they mounted one of the greatest comebacks I've been involved in, and they beat us that Monday Night Football game. So that game, when they beat us that game, that guaranteed them the division or the conference championship or our division championship. So instead of them going on the road, to play the Giants and the, and the Eagles, we had to go on the road. So we go on the road first. I think we played the Eagles. Then we come back home and we go on the road again. And we play the Giants. And then we come back home. And then we have to go up to Candlestick Park and play the, the 49ers for the NFC Championship game. And uh, that game, you know, I think the travel really got to us that game because we didn't play like we normally played. And, uh, and they were a better team. I mean, I think they were a better team than us at that time. My hat goes off to them for delivering on, for, you know, being the best team and, and winning. After that year, uh, you moved on. You played one year in Detroit. Started all 16 games. Yet the part, I'm a, I'm a bit younger. When you're talking about the 1989 game, I was I was an 11-year-old. I was watching that game on TV as an 11-year-old. And so 1990, you move on to Detroit. Why did you leave L.A.? Did they let you go? Was it so, you know, what was it a decision for? Well, the, the Rams had, you know, they had started, you know, when Eric Dickerson left in 87, uh, you know, I was holding out with Eric as well. And, uh, you know, the team just thought they were going to go in a different direction. They had gotten all the draft picks. They, they had drafted, uh, they had Daryl Henley who came in in, uh, 1989. And, uh, then they had, then they drafted Todd Light, I think, in 1990. So I think the team just went, was going in a different direction. Uh, in the, the 1989 team and the 1990 team did not look up, did not look the same in a sense. A lot of players who had, who had been there in 85 and 86, 87, 88 and 89 were, were now gone. So now, you know, a lot of players, they think that because they put on a helmet that has a Ram horn on it, that they're the same Ram team. And that is, we're not like McDonald's. We don't make the same hamburger every day, 365. The helmet just is just a helmet. It's the guys in the helmet that make the helmet go. And uh, the Rams decided with John Robinson, you know, he, his philosophy was the system. His system was a great system. 
and you can plug guys into the system, and the results will be the same. For instance, we get rid of Eric Dickerson, then we bring in Charles White, who does well, then we bring in Greg Bell, who does well. So all is good. Offense is clicking, everything's going good. But when you start losing key components in your offensive line, uh, in the other positions, then the team is not the same team. And so uh, in 1990, 91, 92, 93, they were just, they, they, I, don't even, I don't even think they went to the playoffs on one of those years. So uh, they, it was a definite drop off from 89 being the NFC championship game to never going back until you go to St. Louis. You played a lot of great teams. And uh, for me personally, the 80s is kind of like a golden age of the NFL. This is where you saw the rise of the the 49ers dynasty, you saw the Giants and the way they played and so on and so forth. What was the best team you ever played against? Like what year, what team was it? Well, you know, the best team I ever played against, you know, the Giant team was a great team. I mean, you know, come on. That defense was unbelievable. And, you know, Philadelphia had a great team, a great defense. So did Atlanta and so did New Orleans. You know, there's a lot of good teams out there. The Raiders were a star-studded team. But the greatest team I ever played against, even the Redskins were a good team, a great team. Um, but the greatest team was the 49ers, without a doubt. I mean, they just had the superstars in all the right positions. Uh, you know, Taylor and Rice, you know, uh, you know, at the receivers, two or two pro bowlers, uh, Montana and Roger Craig, and their defense with Ronnie Lott and Eric Wright and all those guys. They were, they were probably the greatest team we played against. Who was the greatest player you ever played against? Well, I have to say that, you know, I, I you know, I, I joked with, when Jerry Rice was being inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, uh, I got into his party, and he came up to me and said, how did you get in here? And I said, hey, man, I'm sorry I didn't contribute more to your success. <laughs> but the greatest player I played against was probably Jerry Rice, without a doubt. But, you know, the guy who, the guy who gave me the most trouble was Dwight Clark. You know, I didn't have very much trouble with Jerry. I knew what Jerry wanted. He wanted the deep in, the deep out, the corner, I mean, the, the post and the go. And I made sure he didn't get those routes. And uh, but, but Dwight Clark... 6'4", you know, 220, uh, gave me a lot of problems. Now, you mentioned Jerry Rice. We have a good amount of listeners who are younger. They never actually got to see Jerry Rice play. So what made him so good? Well, Jerry Rice, he ran, They, you know, see, people don't realize this about Jerry and Joe Montana, college up there in, uh, up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and they would work out together. And they would work on their timing. And the timing that Jerry and Joe had was unbelievable because you had a split second to determine is Jerry running a deep out, a deep in, or the go in the post. And if you guess, if you guess wrong, because he runs such great routes, that's how you got guys. That's how you beat guys over the top. Everyone would try to take away everything from Jerry, and you could, you can't take away everything from him. So his his precision route running, having a great running game, and having a great quarterback uh, is is probably the reason why he was so successful. But then. He goes to the Raiders without Joe Montana, and then Joe Montana retires, and Steve Young comes in, and now all of a sudden those quarterbacks, Rich Gannon, Steve Young, are now great quarterbacks because they're throwing to Jerry Rice. So Jerry, he he he, he brought players along with him. This is going to be a little of a strange question, but I have to ask just so maybe even to get you to laugh a little bit. Can you please explain to me what on earth happened that you guys would record the Ramit video? We were four, and uh, they promised us some money. And, uh, we, you know, it was the biggest fiasco ever because we stayed up all night. It was on a Tuesday night. We stayed up all night 
film it all day Tuesday, all night Tuesday. We don't get out of that film. We don't stop filming until like 3 in the morning. Have to be at practice. So Wednesday practice. Going into the game with the Chicago Bears, you know, who arguably had the best defense in NFL history. We're all sitting up there, you know, being Hollywood, trying to make this video that we regret today. But uh, it was about the money that we never got paid. Never got paid? Never saw one penny from that video. Never. Yet fans still play it. That's crazy. Fans still play it. Somebody, somebody, hey, the rich get richer and the poor, we all get poor. Was that was that something that Georgia Farnier was supposed to pay? No, 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 no. Oh, was somebody else? One of, teammates, one of our teammates came up to us. I'm not sure who it was exactly. and said he had a producer because the Bears had made their Super Bowl shuffle. And so we're, they wanted us to do a, a, a video to compete against them because if we beat them, we go to the Super Bowl, and that video is going to be the one everybody plays. So he talked a few of us into it. So we agreed to it. We didn't know it was going to take so long, but uh, we agreed to it. We signed contracts. Soon after, we didn't go to the Super Bowl. Uh, soon after that, the company folded, never paid us a penny, and they put it on YouTube, and now everybody's watching it for free. And we do watch, and we do uh, enjoy it quite a bit, actually. <laughs> well, when was the last time you saw that thing? Well, every time we do a fundraiser or a special event, when the Rams get together, someone always pulls out that video, and we're seeing it all the time. And even Someone even asked us about, you know, uh, a couple months back, will we, will we be willing to redo the video? Well, you know, there's a lot of no's. You know, we asked. First of all, Eric Dickerson would never do it again. I would never do it again. I don't think a lot of the players would ever do redo of the old video. Rehash it? So, uh, <laughs> rehash it, no. We're, if that's something that's in the, in the past, and it's going to stay in the past. Well, you did uh, you did play the Bears that year. Uh, it was a tough game for you guys. You mentioned arguably um, the best defense. Do you believe that? Do you believe they're the best defense in history? Well, I mean, there's only, for me personally, okay, I'm a big fan, been a fan since I was like eight years old. Uh, I've never seen a defense dominate the way they did that year. Now, I mean, were they the Pittsburgh Steelers defense? No, because they dominated for a long time. But that one year, that one year that they that they got it together, uh, I think that defense was as good as any defense in history. Now, are they better than the Pittsburgh Steelers defense? Uh, that's debatable, you know, but uh, I think they're one and two. Moving forward a little bit. The Rams leave for 22 years, okay, and they come home. What was it like for you as a, as a Ram? I mentioned former earlier, but you're still a Ram. So if you weren't still a Ram, we wouldn't be taught, have this conversation. What was it like for you as a Ram to come be able to go back to see these games and see them don the, the old uniforms again in L.A. and really become part of it all over again? Well, you know, uh, when, they, when they moved to St. Louis, you know, uh, I, you know, I just retired in 19, spring of 1991. So I wasn't really too fond of the Rams at that particular time because, you know, you always leave the team. The team that cuts you is the team you hate. And uh, so I wasn't that fond of them through the 80, 91, 92, 93 season, 94. Uh, and then really when they won the Super Bowl and Georgia said that this trophy is for the fans of St. Louis, instead of saying for the Ram fans everywhere, I just said, screw the Rams. I'm not ever going to root for them again when she said that you know, after the game. But then it wasn't until about maybe five years ago, a guy that works for the Rams now, Kyle Eversgird, reached out to me to come back to St. Louis and watch the game. And that's when the, that's when I started rekindling my love and desire for the Rams was when Kyle invited me back to St. Louis. I got a chance to meet, you know, Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt and Marshall and all those guys. 
uh, Todd Light and all those guys that, that played in St. Louis. Well, Todd played here too, but all the guys in St. Louis, they treated us with respect and welcomed us in. And so then I became, then I, I once again became a Ram fan. And so now I'm a huge Ram fan, and I'm so happy that the Rams are inviting all the St. Louis Rams back to L.A., letting them know they have a home here with us. Now, this team, they had a rough go of it last year. And they come back, they go 4-12. and 12. We, we saw, just like you said, you said in L.A., they, you have to win. And they struggle that first year. Attendance goes down as the year goes on. Now this year, attendance has been okay, but they're exciting. They're, this is a really, really fun football team to watch. Where do you see this team going in the next couple of years? Well, you know, I mean, in all due, in all due respect to Jeff Fisher, you know, uh, he had a team that was in transition for two years. I mean, they, they were talking about moving, you know, and, and it's a mental game too, you know. So you got players who are the media talking about the team moving, the coaches getting them prepared to move. And so last year was a tough year for the Rams to really be successful because the move, you know, they're, they're temporary over here, temporary over here. Guys got to find places to live. So it's almost like everybody's a rookie, you know. So it was a very tough year for the Rams last year. Uh, they got the new coach in. They made some really good personnel moves. Because remember, it's not the helmet. It's the players. So they made some really good personnel moves. Uh, new fresh start for everybody. Uh, everybody gave Coach Bay a, a shot. Uh, you know, they, they struggled early on. You know, they're 5-2 and two now. Um, you know, they have an opportunity to, to win the division because, you know, quite frankly, the division is not that tough. I mean, the 49ers are not the same 49er team. Now Arizona just lost Carson Palmer, so they're not the same Arizona team. And Seattle's not the same Seattle team. They can barely score. So the, the conference the, the conference has changed a little bit, so it's in the Rams' favor. The Rams have a great young quarterback. they got some dynamic receivers coming in. they got a great running back. They rebound the offensive line. Defense is still playing great. Uh, so they have a really good chance of winning the division this year. So I'm really thinking they may go 9-6. and six or 10 and 6, something like that. Before we move on, let's get a word for our sponsors. The Gold Ram Barbershop over at 13755 Golden West Street in Westminster, California, 92683. It's owned by Sal Martinez. He opened up his barbershop the day the Rams left in 1994. He's held the door open ever since. He's kept the lights on for Rams fans. Great prices. Give, you can get an appointment with him real easy, 714-894-7267. Hours are usually open 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Go in there, get a great haircut at a great price. Take a look at that museum he's got in his store. It's Rams everything. Rams autographs, Rams pictures, Rams jerseys, Rams, Rams, Rams. It's just a great experience. Go in there and talk Rams football. He opened that store for you, the fan. Take a look. Again, it's 714-894-7267. Oh, and if you are interested in sponsoring Rams Talk, please join us. We would love to be on board. We'd love to work with you. We're at RamsTalk1945 at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with us. What about the future? I don't want you to be the swami with a crystal ball, but the way Coach McVay has come in there with his staff, and, they, and they've done a lot of good things. Going beyond this year, but where do you see this team going? And the reason I ask is because my partner and I, we, we, we talked about this on the pod the other day, and we honestly believe that this team is, they're only going to get better. They're young. Uh, they're clearly hungry. They went out and got some guys who are really, really have high football IQs. And we think this team could be a Super Bowl contender here sooner rather than later. Uh, how do you view that? Are, is this some, are we seeing something special form with the Rams? 
We could. You know, uh, they have the nucleus of a great team. But you got a lot of a lot of unanswered questions, you know, like Tavon Austin, what are you going to do with him? Uh, what are you going to do with Tremaine Johnson? What are you going to do with Aaron Donald? You know, a lot of free agents, a lot of guys are going to be free agents. And, it, and, it's, and it's about how you keep this team together as best you can for a short stretch because it's not like the 80s when you could, there was no free agency, so guys had to stay on the same team. You know, now there's free agency, so guys move around from year to year, so if they can keep their nucleus together and they can build and replace guys that they lose with, with competent players, then I see them being very successful. Because it's hard to be New England in this day and age in football. You know, uh, you know the, dynasty, the, the time of the dynasties are gone, you know, I think. You know, New England's probably the last of the dynasties where a team's going to be that successful for that long just because of the, the transition of players. Now, if you are like Belichick and you have a system and you really stick to your system and you you pick the right make the right choices, then this team could be a dynamic team for a while to come. Is McVeigh putting in a system that will work? Kind of like what you're what you're saying about Belichick. Once I talked to I talked to Bill Belichick a while back, about eight years ago, and I was calling him a genius, and he said, "Well, I wasn't such a genius in Cleveland." So you know. Uh, I think his system is a good system, but it's it, it's a, it's a it's a you know it takes front office and the coaching system. You know what I mean? So it's, so it's a it's a combination. There's a front office bringing the right kind of guys to fit his system, the right kind of guys to make the team better. Do they make personnel moves and make the team better? Do they do they miss do they, do they make good on their draft picks or do they miss on their draft picks? So he can have a great system, but like again I said, with you know it's the, it's the, not the helmet, it's the guys. And wear the helmet. So if they can if they can do that, then his system will be successful. I want to ask a bit of a sensitive question, and if you choose, if you don't want to answer it, I understand. It's kind of a toughie. During the 1980s, you know, 90s and 2000s, we saw a plenty of head injuries, and we've seen specifically a lot of really formidable players that you either played with or or really went against during your career come down with CTE. How do you feel about seeing these players struggle like this and seeing these new findings about traumatic brain injury and so on and so forth? You know, I'm one of the victims of that as well. You know, I wouldn't say a victim, but I have my own problems with memory and, and my own problems with all all those things. And, you know, uh, it's a sad thing to see guys, you know, who I have played with, but I'm not able to remember their names or not able to remember when we played or certain situations in certain games. And it's also hard to see my former players go through the same thing that I go through. Uh, you know, we love the game. And our situation was just trying to educate, you know, younger players about the damages that this game, that you can incur while playing this game. Because we were never told. We were always taught to use our heads, hit with our heads. Uh, the rules were not designed for safety. Uh, and, we're, and we didn't play the – when we got concussions, if we didn't go back in the game, we'd be viewed as being weak. You know, they, they say you're weak. You're get tough. Get tough. That's, that's what they tell us. If, if we didn't go back in the game after concussions, oh, you're okay. None of us all. Get back in the game. So I, I'm glad that they're actually looking out for the health and well-being of the players now. But unfortunately, it's making the game a more boring game. And I think that's the real reason. There's two reasons why I think attendance is down. The game is not the same, and the ticket prices are way too high. But but going back to the concussions and stuff, it was a laughing matter when players got concussions. It wasn't a serious matter. And so I'm glad to see that the league is finally, finally understands that, hey, you know, 
these people are human beings, and we put them in this game. They're going to do their best to play their hardest. It's a violent game played by violent men. You can't change that. But we're going to look out for them because given everything being equal, the coaches are going to want you to get back, to get back in there and play, you know. And yeah. I'm glad that they have doctors on the sideline and the diamond players and take it out of our control, you know what I mean? Because, you know, I've been in games where I was getting dinged, you know, three or four times in a game, you know, where I was kind of dizzy. And I get to the sideline at certain parts of my career when I was in Detroit, all the defensive backs used to carry smelling salt in their socks or in their wristbands. Because I was dinged and couldn't remember the coverages, they'd break the smelling salt and get, you know, give me smelling salt so I could stay in the game. So that's how severe my problems have gotten. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that there's people there now on the sideline that takes that decision away from the players. Because as a player, you want to play, and you don't want to be viewed as weak. And at that time, we needed our jobs. We needed that money, so we, could, we didn't want to get cut because we refused to go back in the football game. Do you hold the NFL responsible for that in the 80s, or were they just as clueless as you guys were about it? Well, you know, the evidence showed that they knew, and they did not share the evidence with us. Now, do we know, do we think that kidding, I mean, I had no clue, actually, that football was going to lead to long-term brain damage. You know what I mean? I just assumed I was playing football because I loved it, and I wanted to play, and I would, you know, I would play again. But I, I would, and I don't hold, I, I hold the NFL somewhat, Complicit in this because of the fact, like I said, there was no one on the sideline who would say, you know, hey, you have a concussion, uh, hold out for a second, don't go back in. You know, there was no one to protect me from myself, you know, and uh, so, uh, you know, they knew because they had done studies on, on, they had done studies. The reason they lost is because they had done these studies and the studies showed that, that repeated head trauma led to long term brain damage and they didn't tell us. That's why they lost. And, uh, but, but, you know, I'll do it again, you know. Uh, I would hope that, that they would change the game to where they wouldn't, you know, teach us techniques that would be harmful to us. So as of now, they teach techniques they use now are less harmful. I mean, the way they practice now, we had two-a-day practices, full gear, contact every practice for six, seven weeks in the summertime. You know, we go into training camp in July 10th. We don't get out to September 1st, two-a-days, every day except game day, and the day after a game, full on contact. You know, nowadays they can only they only they never hit it off. You know, and uh, I think it shows in the in, in the game with the tackling and the way the game is played now. You don't see uh, players playing with the same kind of intensity because you know you know we cause we 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 hit all the time. And so uh, I really can't blame the NFL. They 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 they, they provided me with the opportunity to to do something I really really loved. And I hate to see the game being killed because of uh, past players and things that have happened to us. Well, the NFL's facing numerous issues right now, things that are hurting the reputation, including, you know, the CTE issue. The national anthem thing seems to be, you know, causing some some blowback. Uh, where do you see the league going? Is it, Do you really think the game is dying? Well, it's not dying. I mean, you know, you know, when I play, you know, the, the tickets that I'm saying were $29, okay? Mm-hmm. $29 for a ticket, the best seats in the house. Now, my tickets at the Ram game, they're $220. I mean, you talk about bringing your kids to a game. You talk about bringing your family to a game. You talk about going to a game. I mean, that, if, if, you, if you go to a game, it's going to cost you, you know, to, for a decent ticket, let's say 75 bucks for a bleacher ticket waiting in the end zone somewhere, way up. Mm-hmm. You know, then you got to pay for parking. I mean, a beer costs 20 bucks. you know, hot dogs, $10. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, the anthem, 
the thing about the anthem is, and I, that, that's one reason why I think the tendency is down. The, the, and another reason is the way the game is played is another reason. But the, the thing about the anthem, what everyone keeps forgetting is, you know, you know, my, my dad was in the military, okay? And he fought in the, the Korean War, went to the Vietnam War twice. When he come back to Georgia, I still couldn't go to the bathroom. I still couldn't drink out of a drinking fountain. I couldn't go to certain schools, eat at certain restaurants, had to get our food from the back of the restaurant, couldn't go to movie theaters. You know what I'm saying? All those things. My dad was fighting for that flag. He, he was fighting. He risked his life for that flag. Mm-hmm. But then the people in my in, in the Georgia and South Carolina, they didn't care my dad was fighting for the, that flag, the anthem. They still discriminated against him. So, but the reason why the players are protesting, they're not protesting the flag. They're protesting police injustice in the inner cities, not in the suburbs, in the inner cities. You know, and, and so there's a race issue in this country, and it's obvious. Think that the person in Vegas, the shooter in Vegas, if if he had been Muslim. Imagine if that shooter would have been Muslim. Imagine. We'd be trying to round up every Muslim person in this country. So so we, there's a definite race issue in this country. We, we say the shooter, he must have been crazy. He must have been deranged. He's not a terrorist. Well, if you terrorize people, you're a terrorist. But if, he, if, he, if the shooter had been Muslim, it would have been a definite terrorist attack. So I think there's a lot of issues that we need to talk about. Players all love America. They all love the anthem. They're just protesting and want to bring light to the injustice in the inner cities. You look at the crime rates. Mm-hmm. More blacks are, 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 are incarcerated at much higher levels for doing the same crimes as others. Than, 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 you know, and so there's a lot of statistics that back it up. And so Kaepernick, he goes out, he's protesting against police brutality. He's not protesting against the men and women of the armed forces. He puts his money where his mouth is. He donates money to the armed forces and stuff. He, he's just protesting police brutality. I think he got away from that. Let me ask this question, and this is really a chance to, to speak to some of those fans. And by the way, I'm, I'm a veteran. I served during the you know, post-9-11 yeah. Afghanistan Iraq war. And so the fans who are upset, they're, they're upset with the protests. Their feeling is, you know, at least the ones I've talked to, <laughs> Why during the anthem? Why can't it be before the anthem? Why can't it be using uh, using who you are as an NFL athlete and your stardom to get involved in protests at that particular police department or at that particular, wherever the injustice you're seeing, why there? Why do it during the middle of the anthem? That's that's the big you know, question I've seen asked. Protest is not easy. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's not easy to take a stand against something and, 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 and hold and, and, and really go through with it. You know, I go to this, my son's games, and I have a debate on whether I'm going to stand up for the anthem. Now, my dad was 22 years in the military. You know, I, you know, I love the military. I, I, I respect the guys in the military, what they go through, what their families go through. I just have a problem with people talking about what we should respect and what we shouldn't respect because as I grew up, Honestly, I didn't think the anthem was talking about me. You know, when they sang the anthem when I was growing up, I was thinking, what are they talking about? I'm not free. You know, but, but the players are not protesting the anthem. They're protesting the police brutality, and they want to bring the light to it. So everyone wants to make it about disrespecting the anthem. But no one talks to me about disrespecting me when I was growing up. I don't hear anybody saying, Leroy, I'm so sorry, man, that your dad fought in three wars and was stationed in Germany and all over protecting American freedoms, and we didn't give you your freedom. So I have issues with, with, the, with, the, with the characterization that if you protest 
police brutality, you're all of a sudden not an American. You know, and that's that's the that's the narrative that I get, especially from a president who dies to draft six times. I mean, where is your American? What, what, what did you pay? What, what, what did you? You were honoring the military, the flag, the anthem, and so that's just my perspective. I think Colin Kaepernick paid a heck of a price. You look at all the people in the civil rights movement. Dr. King was hated by everyone. He was, um, uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover had him public enemy number one. You know, uh, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, ridiculed by the media for his stand against the Vietnam War. But now there's a Martin Martin Luther King Day in America. So I think as time goes on and we bring this issue to light, we're going to start having the conversations about, uh, you know, police brutality. I think it starts with just, you know, more, better police training. You know, better scrutinize. Cause, you know, I have a lot of police officer friends. I mean, I'm, I'm a lot of them. Mm-hmm. We go hang out and do all kinds of stuff. They're great people. They, they, they're, you know, they're great people. But, you know, we're talking about the few that, that, that uh, aren't the great people. I think what we really have a problem with, I think we have a problem in this country with generalizations. The idea, okay, well, all cops are this or all the NFL players are this or all, you know, all black people are this, all white people are this and blah, blah, blah. We generalize everything. And what it does is it really stops civil discourse. And, you know, it, what you really need to be able to have is a conversation. And we can't do that, you know, much these days. There are, there are a lot. You and I are having a conversation right now. And I think it's a pretty fascinating one, quite frankly. But you try and get Donald Trump into, into a room right now with Stephen, with Stephen Curry. Stephen Curry. And, you know, that's, that's going to be an ugly conversation probably. So... So we we have a job to do. We have we have some work to do yet in that area, and I think that you know you you make some valid points. Um, by the way, I'm I'm a I'm a social studies teacher, and I teach freshman American history. And I do want you to know that when I am when I'm in my classroom, I teach my kids what happened, and what I tell those kids are, you know what I need. I need to you our our country made some mistakes. We're not perfect. I still believe that our country is is the greatest country to ever be on the face of the earth. I still believe that we've done far more good in the world than, than wrong, but we're flawed, and we have skeletons in the closet, and the best thing we can do is talk about those things, address them, and move forward. And the kids know that when they're, when they're in my classroom, we're going to address those things. And actually, right now, we, we went through the early civil rights era in the 1920s, uh, and the failures of the Taft administration, the, the Wilson administration, and the uh, Teddy Roosevelt administration when it comes to civil rights. So we need to be able, we need to be willing to talk about those things. And I, 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 and I applaud you for your service and, and being a teacher. That's just a great thing. And, you know, I, I'm like, I'm for the flag. You know, I'm for the national anthem. I'm an American. I'm, you know, I, even though I live in Mexico half the year, uh, I'm an American. Uh, you know, I honor the sacrifices of my father and, and those who fought with him, or who, my brother, you know, you, you know, everybody in armed services with, with that, with that means, you know, I honor it. But, you know, you ask me the question why they do it. It's because sometimes when you, are desperate, you know, and you want to get your point across. Sometimes you have to do something dramatic to get people to talk about it. You know, if, if, if let's say they didn't, they didn't, they didn't, the player didn't kneel and the player stood up and the players went on after the game talking about police brutality, it would be a subject that would not even be covered. You see what I'm saying? Let, let me pose this question to you. And this is just kind of a thought question. Um, but what if those players after the game gathered up and went and protested outside that particular police department that they they want to address that day. Would that be on TV? Would that be covered? Well, 
it, 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 well, it could be. I mean, it depends. You know, I mean, it wouldn't be as dramatic as, as, as and, and so, listen, I think with Colin, I don't know Colin personally. Uh-huh. I just think he wants us to have a conversation about it. And, 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 that, and that's why he brought, that's why we're having a conversation. Uh-huh. You wouldn't be asking this question if some players went and protested in front of a police station because it wouldn't be that big a deal. They just protested in front of a police station. Okay, there's a protest over there. Some players in there. They'd be news for an hour or two hours and bam, it'd be gone. But Colin Kaepernick protested last year. This happened last year. You know what I'm saying? This, 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 and it's still, we're still seeing the remnants of it. Now, I don't, I particularly, I, I, I won't go in the stadium. If I'm, if I'm, I'm not going to go into a stadium and sit down. I'm not going to do it. Because I, I just don't I, I don't have the courage to do it. I, I wouldn't do it. But do I feel the pain that Kaepernick feels? He's sure. I lived it. So I, I think we're getting we're, we're making way too much. Cause I was at the game. I was at the USC game. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was at the USC game, and everybody's supposed to be standing, paying attention to the flag. How come the cameramen are on knees with film cameras filming, and guys are walking around with you know the cameramen are all walking around. Like, they're not respecting it. That's not it. To me, I'm like, whoa, you should stop and, and stop. Why don't they stop? I don't, I don't understand why they, they can get on a knee and film the the, 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 mil- the soldiers with the flags and walk around them and, and do all that, all that they're doing. And it's not a, because they're not protesting, it's okay. So I think that you're going to say that some person needs to respect the flag. They need to respect it. They need to stand up. They need to stop filming, you know, because that's what they tell us to do. Stop whatever you're doing and honor the flag. So um, it's unfortunate that it's come to this point, you know, that we have to have this conversation, but it's a good conversation to have because, you know, it, it's just so many instances where, where young black men have been, been shot and there seems to be no justice. And so that's, that's the, now, and I'm not saying, I'm not generalizing police officers. I'm not generalizing black people at all. I'm just saying that, you know, like in my neighborhood, there's darn any police officers around hardly. I mean, yeah. They're not around us. They're, they're, we see them every now and then. But I went down to do a, 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 an event in downtown L.A. or the Compton area, and there are police everywhere. So if I went to a bar and had two or three drinks, chances are I'm going to be stopped, you know, especially if I'm driving a nice car in that little neighborhood. So I'm going to be stopped. But, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. I just feel, I just feel you know, that I, I, the reason why the, the stadiums aren't packed is more because of ticket prices. Because they are enormous. It costs 50 bucks to park at the Coliseum, you know. Yeah. Here's a 20. Tickets are, my tickets are 220. If me and my son go there, we're going to spend at least 700 bucks just going to the game, you know. And I think the NFL needs to look at, at that and also the fact that the, the product is not the same because the way they practice is not the same. So they try to slowly help get us geared towards this new type of football because of the concussions, but it's not the football that we really fell in love with. And yeah. so I think those combinations are the main reason. It's this is a great conversation. We're almost an hour in. So uh, at some yeah. point we gotta hang up here. But um Okay. Yeah, but but we definitely Leroy, we want to have you back on the show because you have a lot of great things to talk about, especially when you get you know get deep into it. Would you be willing to come back later in the year and talk with us some more? Sure. Just call me anytime. Okay, yeah. outstanding. But one question before you go. Just one one more question here. And what I do want to know is you said the Rams brought you back five years ago and, and they invited you out there. What is your relationship with the team like now? My, my relationship is very good. You know, um, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm just a fan really now. You know, I know my time has passed, and uh, I'm just a fan now. The Rams organization, Kyle Evers, good, Shannon Elliott, uh, 
you know, they, they, they treat me with great respect. Uh, when I need something like special, they, they deliver for me. I go out and do a lot of, uh, social community events for the Rams, uh, you know, when, because the current players can't really do it. So I'm, I'm used as an arm to the community. Uh, you know, I love the Rams. They're, you know, they're my favorite team. They hired my best friend, Eric Dickerson. Uh, so everything's great. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad, you know, for a long time, I remember, I want to say it was Jack Youngblood, but I don't want to quote Jack. But I think at some point he mentioned, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to risk that. But I think he had mentioned at some point that the Rams weren't treating the older players, you know, the L.A. players well. And then they began this initiative to, to start, you know, really reaching out to players. And I built Rams talk on the idea that we don't just cover the team now. We wanted to go back and we wanted to reconnect to that history because the, the Rams, the, the history of the Rams is got such a legacy to it. You know, there are so many firsts that this team has been involved with over the years. You know, so it's that's a big deal. That's a big deal to to us, and that's why we do this whole thing, and that's why we reach out to, to you and to other players, because we want to know what's going on in your life. And I just want to thank you for coming on the show. I want to thank you for, you know, sharing your heart about the issues that you know, are really important to you and, and, and talking to us about your career. And, you know, again, you know, just thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you, Jack. I appreciate it. Anytime, man. All right. I'm Jack Youngblood, by the way. He's my guy. Oh, we've been trying to get an interview with him for years. <laughs> he's a well, tough guy. We're about to talk to Jack. <laughs> oh, well, I would appreciate that. Like I was saying, uh, I believe my partner, Norm, you and Jack, I believe, are his favorite players. And just okay. tonight, I, he said, I will get Jack Youngblood one day. And I said, you, yeah. dude, you realize how hard I've been trying to get an interview with Jack? And he said... Yeah. I'll, one day I will get an interview with Jack. <laughs> I said, well, I, you know, I, I'll reach out to Jack and I'll, uh, give, I'll send you a number. You know what? You, you'd make you'd make our day. You would. Okay, Leroy. Again, thanks for coming on the show. Um, for for Leroy Irvin, this is Derek C. Paul at Rams Talk Radio. We'll talk to you soon. control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. I'm giving Jeb's Basement Renovations one star. He kept asking me what's behind the walls down there. I'm like, why? What, what do you know? No matter how hard you work for your small business, online reviewers will find something to complain about. And then he's like, you can trust me with the job. And I'm all like, trust? <laughs> and while Progressive can't save you from these trolls, we can help you save money on commercial auto and business insurance. Yeah, he charged me less than he said he would, which is... Lying. Get a quote online today at ProgressiveCommercial.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliated and third-party insurers. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.